Hello and welcome to the Mobile Home Park Expert Podcast. I'm Jason Cerrone here with Glenn Esterson as always. Glenn, how are you? I'm excellent. It's Happy New Year. Happy is, New uh, Year. Yeah, this is our first our first show of the, of the year. I'm excited about that. 2020. So thank you everybody who's been listening and Happy New Year to you all. I hope that you have a year filled with uh, success in this crazy awesome business um today's show we're going to be talking about uh glenn's going to be attending the 2020 louisville manufactured housing convention at the kentucky exhibition center january 15th through the 17th and he's on a panel thursday morning the 16th at 8 a.m and uh, I, I saw what kind of the topics they were going to be talking about, Glenn, and I was like, man, there's going to be other people on the panel. I don't know if we'll be able to hear all of what Glenn has to say. I'm unable to attend, unfortunately. So I thought maybe today, if you're cool with it, we can kind of go through the topics that the panel had, the panel folks that put it together came up with, and just kind of get your opinion and, and chat about it. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think there's a lot of guys who aren't going to make it to the uh, exhibit themselves. And, uh, you know, there's it's only a 45-minute panel, and there's three of us on the panel, and it's going to go pretty fast. So I think it makes sense to talk uh, about a few of these things a little bit more in depth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that sounds like a great idea. Awesome, awesome. Okay, so let's get into the very first topic. And um, this is something we've touched on before. But what happened? Well, before, yeah, go ahead. Before we get started on, on the topics, let's give a little background on this on this uh, Kentucky uh, oh, Louisville Manufactured Housing Show. Um, it's it, it's the largest in the country. Last year, about thirty five hundred people attended, and it's where all the new homes get exhibited, and you get to hear some you know pretty exciting in depth panels. Some that deal specifically with the retailing side of, uh, you know, selling the homes to the tenants and uh, the service involved in there. And, and what's going to be different this year, and at least as they've informed me, uh, when I was asked to be on this panel, is I, I would be the first broker speaker at this convention um, and talking from a broker's perspective uh, for this Issues Eating Companies Alive. Uh, so it was kind of, uh, you know, a big deal for me because I've never been a speaker at a large audience like this. I've done plenty of little shows, but this is a big one. This is the nation's biggest one. And, uh, you know, they're saying this year is going to have even a larger uh, roster list than last year did. So, you know, for the guys that like these conventions, if you have time next week to get out there, this might be a real interesting uh, show to see. There'll be about, you know, uh, around a thousand plus community owners there. Uh, from what they're telling me. So it should be an interesting place to network and see all the new homes that are coming out and see all the other uh, vendors that are there with their new products. So that's kind of the background on the show. And I will say, I just came back from Louisville and it is a pretty fun place. And if you like bourbon, there's so much bourbon. <laughs> it's like, it's crazy. And if you have time, you should definitely do the bourbon trail there. It's pretty cool. But Louisville is a, is a really fun city. So, all right, Glenn. Um, you paid too much for your acquisition. What do you do? This is the very first topic listed on the panel's um, notes. And I really want to know, like, if you do buy high, what do you do? Do you just sit? <laughs> 
You know, there's a phrase out there, suck it up, buttercup. You know, you got yourself into here. Let's talk about how we get you back into a proper position. Because overpaying, probably the most common thing I deal with uh, with my buyers. And then sometimes it's even on parks that, that I, that, that I have sold them and I convince them it's not overpaying. You paid what it's worth. Now you have to figure out how to live with the price you paid. So there's a little bit of clarity that probably needs to be defined in what means paid too much, but let's just go with the conventional thing. Like, Hey, my, you know, I, I, the price that I bought this thing at is, you know, a bit uh, too frothy if the market turns and my debt's running up and I can't get refinanced at the rate that I need to be at. That's when I would feel like maybe you paid too much for your acquisition. Um, so what you would do, you know, from from there, in my opinion, is you, you really got to, you know, this is already post all due diligence and, and post closing and you're the owner of this park. So if you missed it, all the steps that we've talked about throughout the whole season that, that we've been in, and what the book's written about, and you still find yourself in this position, you own the park, your your debt coverage is, is, a, is a little thin, and you're having a hard time um, with what uh, with cash flow on that park. What can you do? Selling it's probably not the greatest option because uh, you you know you might get what you paid for it, maybe even a little bump, but after closing fees and after aggravation and broker's fees and all these other things, you're probably going to be out you know a few bucks. Um, and uh, you're going to have a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah. So if, if you bark. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, so, and from a broker's position, right? Like you don't know exactly where the market's going to go. So somebody could easily do what they think is a good deal with you. And then the market turns and then they're in a situation where they're a little upside down. It's like things that are out yeah. of your control. Yeah. It's, you know, 2007, everybody insisted that these were reasonable pricings. Uh, even up into the early part of 2008 and, you know, six months later, you know, 12 months later, it was uh, everybody realized, oh, I think I paid too much. So now what do you do? Because um, that's going to happen again and again. It, even in the best of markets, it happens. You know, we get a little ambitious and a little ahead of ourselves. And, uh, you know, you find yourself there. Hopefully you bought a deal. It's got some upside left. In it. Hopefully if you bought a fully stabilized deal and everything's maximized, it's a slightly different conversation or maybe a uh, a largely different conversation, although there's still options. But let's just talk about the, you know, the typical C-grade uh, mobile home park with, you know, actually, you know, a handful of park-owned homes, a handful of vacant lots, uh, and, you know, uh, public water and things like that. Um, so the obvious solution is always fill your vacant lots. Don't go pressing rents. You're going to press too hard and you're going to offend your base and might have a negative fallout. So first things First, fill your lots. How are you going to fill those lots? You're probably going to have to come out of pocket and buy a home. You might be able to qualify for the cash program and get some homes delivered to you and not have to come out of pocket except for the delivery and setup, which, you know, is about eight to 10 grand for, for most things getting delivered and set up. Uh, but if you have to come fully out of pocket, be prepared, you know, thirty, forty thousand dollars to bring a nice new home into your park. If you're lucky and you can find a good used home for $10,000, it might make sense, but you're still going to have to pay the transport costs. And, you know, maybe your buddy Bob has a, a truck in the middle of the night that can pull it over and you can save a few bucks. But at the same time, you know, it's, let's talk about how most people are going to do it. Most people are going to have to still pay a significant transport fee and a significant setup fee unless they're doing all of that themselves. Uh, so, 
the, the lot, once you fill that lot up, once the home's there, it's almost, assuming you're not in some terribly tertiary challenged market, it's almost certain that you'll be able to get either a renter or ideally a person that's qualified enough to buy that home and get a mortgage from one of the lenders that will loan on these mobile homes. Um, and that immediately is obviously going to give you more cash flow. And that's, that's the quickest way to, to overcoming how much you paid for your acquisition. Cause you know, every, you know, every lot you add is going to add, you know, X amount of dollars of value, 25 to $50,000, you know, per lot. Um, you know, just from the lot rent portion for most three hundred to four hundred dollar lot rent markets, and you know that's gonna that's gonna add up nicely soon. Uh, you fill up five lots, you're probably not gonna be worried that you overpaid for the interim until you have, again remind yourself when you're selling that you overpaid and you could have had a better spread. But uh, this would be the obvious solution: is filling the lots. Now, if you haven't raised rents in years, and you know the rents are still far below market, and you're not in a rent control state, you know it might be appropriate to, to push the rents. But I would really, uh, you know, suggest not doing the "Hey, I'm $100 below market, so I'm going to raise rents, you know, $95." That is going to offend your tenant base. I would really recommend never going you know, more than five or 10%, always limiting that, that rent bump to somewhere around $40 uh, maximum. And, uh, you know, be very cautious when deploying that. But if you have vacant lots, fill those first. If you have, you know, some money to, to spare in the park to pretty it up before you raise the rents, always a good idea. So that, those yeah, are even if it's something superficial, just to give people exactly. a sense of like, that you're not just there to take more money, you're actually doing something good. And a little goes a long way when it comes to sprucing. Exactly, you know. And the if you if you're lucky enough not to have already had your utilities being built back to your tenants, you know, you might want to cough up some money and go get some some new meters put in and start billing back that that water because that's that could be a massive savings on your income. I mean, often the utility uh, expense can be you know fifteen to twenty percent, sometimes higher of your total expenses. Um, so if you can build that back and make that a wash, that's going to instantly help you, you know, uh, have a better cash flow. And you're not going to care again in the interim as much about your overpaying, especially if you got a decent park in a good location. The market will work itself out, assuming we don't go into, you know, World War Three tomorrow and everything yeah. is, you know, changed. Right? <laughs> yeah, it could, it could so, change. Um, <laughs> you know, but assuming things, you know, stand as they are. Um, the markets in good areas will usually catch up and help you absorb some of that overpay you did on your acquisition. Plus these, you know, three things we just talked about are the obvious things. You know, if you get in, you know, a little bit too much over your head and you buy one of those fully stabilized deals and, you know, the market is, you know, not able to support higher rents and all that kind of stuff. And the water's already all direct bill and the tenant homes are all, you know, completely tenant owned and you're in a rent control state. You know, yeah, your life's going to be a little bit harder. You have to find a better way to absorb that upside. And, you know, I was talking with my partner, Charlie, the other day about a similar situation that, you know, we're looking at a couple of deals in New York um, and they're maximized. Right. And they, 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 they're below market, but with the rent control, they can never get to market right now. Right. They're a good hundred and forty dollars below market. And so the what do you do uh, in you know, situations ways, like that as a broker? Yeah. It's it's a challenge, right? Because you have 
a very stable operation there. You'll just never catch up. And now with the 3% limit, that's all you'll ever be able to grow. And that's okay. 3% on $500 rent, $15 a year growth. Hey, that's, that's reasonable, especially when there's, you know, like in this part, there's 260 cases or so. Um, and uh, that's, you know, it's a challenge because their their average rent at that park is like 380, and the market up there is a good 520 or so, 500, 525, somewhere in that range. Um, for other similar A plus looking parks out there. So what what one theory or, or one idea that we were discussing is how would you maximize profits on here? And even though the park's so big, you're never going to be able to transition the whole park the way that we're going to discuss. If you could even just get five or six people a year to sell those homes back to you, okay? Because maybe they're moving to another state, they're tired of the cold weather, whatever it is. Uh, you convince them to sell the home back to you, and then and you can reset the lot rent for that lot market rent. You have to, and these homes up there, they're nice homes. You know, I mean, there's a recent sale that was like $68,000 for the home. So, you know, you're going to have to be prepared to cough up a bit, good bit of money um, to be able to exercise that upside. But if you do it, you know, five times a year, that value, that $120 delta between where they were in lot rent and where they, where the market rent should be, um, there's no gouging there on your current tenant base. That's all on the new guy. Um, and he's going to run into that situation everywhere. So you could really get back to the market rents slowly, but that $120 delta is going to give you a substantial return on that initial purchase of that home. And you, you're going to have to dig in deeper once you overpay. You're going to have to you know, uh, outlay some more cash. But that's one additional way that we think would be successful for some people at some parks. Now, I cannot speak to the validity of that statement. I can only speak to it in theory that it seems like that's a way to dig yourself out on on a stabilized deal that you overpaid on in a rent control type of state. Uh, you know, there's some some people in California that do it pretty regularly, and that you know is a is a potential way to to help mitigate that overpaying um, on a stabilized deal. I think uh, there's other you. clever ways to do to do things. Maybe there's a you know maybe there's a a way to put in a, 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 you know, a small bodega convenience store, a little shop in there that people can get some easy household things, you know, That's now smart. you got to start, you got to start thinking further out of the box now. Right. You know? Are you allowed and to do that things. in a residential space? Well, let's just, let's, I, I can't promise the answer to that. So I'll say, and in many parks that I've seen, especially in the Latino parks, and even in my park that I had for you know a brief while, you know we let people use one of the vacant trailers as a little bodega, and somebody paid us lot rent for the thing, and they're able to sell their you know their their wares of whatnot out of there. Um, and I see it more and more in Latino parks, especially in the South. So I'm not, I don't know if it's allowed, but sometimes it's. Mm, that's really you know, cool i mean it should i mean it makes sense it becomes it becomes a convenience for everybody else it's like a little you know convenience store in the middle and i think glenn just so we can hit on all these topics i think that's a really good transition point to one of the other things you'll be discussing at the panel on january 16th at the louisville manufactured housing convention in kentucky um it, which is um you're overcoming building and zoning issues and warning uh, the respect and earning the respect of municipal officials. So we've talked yeah, about we've that, a lot. that one a lot. 
Yes. Yeah, we 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 talked about that a lot, and and you know, as you can see, it's a very still a very popular topic uh, because it's it's one of the hardest parts of your due diligence process. And as I tell you guys a lot, you got to do this from the beginning. I mean, as soon as you think you're going under contract, go talk to that municipality. Go start being nice with them. Go start making friends. And go go down there and go uncover what you can through the friendly office person who's probably gonna you know give you a weird look at first and, and give you a hard time about the information you want. But once they soften up, they're gonna be your best resource. Got to break and that you ice. You have to be able. You have to break that ice. You have to go down and earn their respect because chances are you're buying out of state and you know you're looking at a at a at a park that's maybe a little defunct and already has a bad taste in the municipal's mouth and maybe somewhere in the back room they have it you know looking at something that that they might try and uh, uh not exist in their in their municipality anymore so you, you know coming from out of state and going into this new situation with this defunct park you're going to have to really show them that you're there to do good and then that you're there to improve the property and you're going to keep your word about it and you're going to want to lay out what you want to do. And while you're laying out what you want to do with your improvements with them, you want to ask them, uh, you know, at each step along the way, is this allowed? If not, what can I do in this situation? You know, you want to double check with them that the grandfather zoning that's most likely in place, keeping that park together, you know, doesn't have some weird um, rules that, that cancel out uh, some of the clauses for the grandfather uh, clause, like uh, switching out an old home with a new home. In some parts, that can switch out your whole setbacks and really make you, you know, uh, go through a really rough year of figuring out what to do. I mean, I'm actually working that with a tenant right now outside of uh, outside of Charleston. He had a park that the, you know, that the city is trying to shut down in his nice little park that was performing all lot rent can now not be re-rented as it is if those tenants move out and he has to transition it, which means he has to rebuild the entire park. Um, and it's a real, real shame because that's going to be a lot of extra money and it's going to be a real hard time to get done. So if you, you know, had they done their inspections up front with the municipality and asked certain questions about these setbacks and about these other little zoning, you know, things, you know, they would have had more insight and maybe been better prepared. But, they, you know, in this case, they, they kind of got caught uh, uh, in a situation where they that they weren't prepared for. You know, other things the municipality can help you with is really um, uh, understanding how you can improve your property. And maybe if you did all the improvements that you said you were going to do, maybe you have a good taste put in their mouth and maybe – They'll let you expand your park a little bit, especially, you know, if there's some vacant land and some affordable housing needs in there. Um, and that's that's a big deal, you know, and that's going to really help you with, you know, uh, with your valuation. If you can expand that park even by five or ten lots. So you know, earning the respect of the municipal officials is the most uh, one of the most important things and yet one of the most overlooked things. Yeah, and it's, it's all part of that initial due diligence phase that we've talked so much about. If you don't get out there and get to know the people and learn about all of the things that the seller might not be telling you even, right? Like, you know, oh, yeah. sewage plans or, 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 you know, waste, you know, nearby waste problems and toxic water, who knows? But you, if you don't go out and you don't reach out and you don't try to make friends with people, you're going to have a long road ahead of you because those are the exact people you don't want on your bad side. They can make your life exactly. very they, difficult. 
very difficult. I went through it. It ain't easy. And I, and I never got any love or respect out of it. And I just had to comply and it left a real bad taste in my mouth. And I, you know, I, I, I sure wish I could have, you know, from the beginning worked with them instead of as a, uh, as a cause and effect type of thing that now I have to work with them, you know? So yeah, that's how, you know, those, that would be my advice. As I've said many times, get in front of those guys. The moment you think you're going under contract and talk to them about your plans and, you know, be nice to them. So, you know, you might want to send them a thank you card or something every now and then, because the, the lady or the, the gentleman that's working the front desk there, you know, they deal with so many jerks that they, you know, if you can be the guy that's not a jerk, you're going to, you know, you can have a better time with that. Yeah. And there's a reason why this panel is called Issues Eating Companies Alive, right? These are like the real major problems that are affecting a lot of people. So I want to jump into the next one, Glenn. And it's who actually owns the home you rent space to? Why is that important? And why is it hurting uh, manufactured housing companies? Well... You know, we talk about this a lot, you know, park-owned homes versus tenant-owned homes. And I think just about, you know, most people are on the same page that they would prefer a tenant-owned home. The retailers love tenant-owned homes because that's their direct client. You know, park owners love tenant-owned homes because they, they know they're a much stickier tenant. Um, however, there's plenty of deals that have plenty of park-owned homes. And, you know, you have to kind of wonder... Um, you know, about, you know, about that. And, and the, the transition, you know, should be, you should always try and transition these park owned homes. Um, you know, there are exceptions to the rule, but again, deferring back to an earlier statement, we're talking about your average C-class park, uh, you know, with, you know, the slightly used homes and things like that. Uh, and, and those kind of homes, in my opinion, should always be transitioned as quick as you can because the cost of upkeep on those park-owned homes is going to be too expensive. And you're going to consist, you know, constantly think to yourself, oh, well, hey, I'm getting $700 rent on this. Why would I want to have just a $300 rent? And when you balance out that $400 difference, you know, yeah, that sounds great, but that's $5,000, you know, of, of profit that you think you have. And, that maintenance on there, I mean, an average turnover, which is, you know, anywhere from call it 18 to 30 months is the average tenant life in these, in these used park owned homes. And that average turnover is going to cost you something like $5,000 unless you're doing all the work yourself. Well, and, and, and people, people and, don't think about their time enough, right? The calls, yeah. you know, even if you have a property manager, oh, this big thing happened, you're going to be hearing about all of these things. It's going to add stress and it's going to make you less good at all the other things that you're doing. It's a distraction. Yep. That's how I keep thinking about it. The more I think about it, park-owned homes seem like a distraction. Unless, you know, some of the ones that you, you've showed me before that are new and, like, the house, the homes are really nice, I think that's different. Of course. There's exceptions always to every rule out there that I know of, right? Um, so, you know, and, and, and there's a slight middle ground there that, uh, you know, I, I, I mentioned it earlier with this CASH program and other similar programs like CASH, which is, you know, uh, where, where – the finance, you know, the, the the retailer gets the home over to you, or the manufacturer gets the home over to you, pay the setup, and then the tenant goes and gets on the hook for the mortgage for the home. You're in a second place hook on there most of the time. So if the tenant defaults, 
you know, you get the home back and you're responsible now for it to get it, you know, resold. Um, but that's that's a slightly wait, better wait. option, I think. That's how it time. works? I want to make sure I understand that. You're saying, like, if somebody forecloses, the park owner gets it? In the cash program, because the, 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 there wouldn't be a foreclosure. The, the, the tenant would default. And then the... The manufacturer already has you as the person who's you know responsible for this thing until that tenant has paid off their their balance, but they've approved that tenant and moved. So and you're the lien holder. So you're you're kind of like a second place lien holder. Okay, on, gotcha. You know? um, and you know when if they default and, and they have a very successful low default rate on on these uh, programs from from what a lot of park owners are telling me. So it's a lower output of cash for a newer home and a tenant who kind of owns the home, but you have some security in there knowing that, you know, it would, it wouldn't get pulled off of your lot necessarily if that tenant defaults, you know, through this program, because you would still be there to be able to get it resold. Um, and that's, that, that's a neat distinction to have. Um, but if it is just a true lot renter, who owns their own home and, you know, they're in there and they have a mortgage on there and then they default on that mortgage in that home. You know, you might lose that home off out of your park. So you want to, you know, you want to be aware of the issues that your tenants might be facing about their financial situations, because it could have a further impact on your park if the banks try and pull out those homes from there. Um, and, uh, you know, usually they'll work with the park owner. Right. I mean, that's a lot of work on them. Nobody wants that. <laughs> yeah, especially for for buckets amounts of money. You know? Right. Nobody. Um, wants, nobody you, wants that. You, so you want to do that, but you also want to make sure that the tenant doesn't sell the home to another person who doesn't live in the park to you know for ten thousand dollars to pay off whatever mortgage was left, and now that home is getting pulled out of your park by you know some other person for some other location. Um, because now you have to go through that whole process again. Wow. That's um, something is, really important to look out for. Can you, is there any like covenants that you can have in place that doesn't allow people uh, to do that? See, see, I, I can't answer that for every single state in, in municipality. I, what I can say is there's a lot of owners out there that write their lot lease, uh, to have that the home cannot be moved for X amount of years. Um, and they, they give some consideration for that particular um, paragraph in their leases. And I don't know if it holds up in court. Uh, sometimes I guess it does, and sometimes maybe it doesn't. Uh, but that's that's the hard part about those homes is not letting the, the home leave your thing. So what a lot of owners also do is put a first right of refusal in on those homes. So the tenant, you know, would sell it to them first and foremost. Um, some, some owners say, Hey, you know, this guy wants $25,000 for, you know, for their, for their junky little home. They'll never be able to sell it that way. I'll let them just abandon the home and then I'll go and file for abandoned title and, and go through that whole phase. Cause maybe the home's only worth, you know, eight grand or something, you know, right. um, you know, so there's, there's a lot of caveats in there, um, and a lot of different strategies that get deployed. But from my perspective, Whatever you can do to protect that home from leaving your park that's legally allowed, I would go ahead and try and figure that out up front with your municipality, with your attorney, have the, you know, when you take over, have new leases issued. So that way these things don't become a challenge a couple of years down the road when there's a situation in that person's life that requires them to 
you know, consider moving. Um, that, that that's what I would say up front. Again, it always yeah. boils to this lot of upfront work, you know. Of course, yeah, it goes back to due diligence. Uh, the the last thing that our pan the panel is talking about will be um, growing good service setup and subcontractors, which. You know, I've worked with my share of bad vendors, and one bad vendor can make your life a living hell. <laughs> it's so miserable. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, it's, and I have a feeling this particular subject is more geared towards the manufacturers and the retailers on here about growing good service. But if you're a park owner, you better have some good service in your park for your tenants. You know, it doesn't not apply to you because they're not necessarily focusing on the park owner with this question. But your, you know, your your deal with your tenants is that you're providing them safe, affordable, clean housing, and you know you should take that seriously. Um, in my mind of, of growing good service, it's you know it's okay if people aren't happy with you, but at least you're keeping your word on what you said you would do to live up to your end of the obligations in the contract that you that you have with your tenants. Um, now, some of that is going to come down to your vendors. You know, if you're saying, hey, if there's if it, if this is a park owned home and something breaks, I'll send my guy over and fix it. Well, you need a vendor to go over there and fix it. And if you're from out of state and you didn't have all of your vendors lined up before you close, or at least, you know, right in the early part of, of the closing, you're going to again find yourself in a position like, shoot, what do I do? And now I'm going to have to go pay rotor router $400 to go clog, unclog a sink, you know, because yeah. you didn't have your plumber vendors worked out up front. You would do it for, you know, a $40 check-in visit or something, you know, um, and it, it's, you know, critical that, you know, when you're going through your due diligence with the seller, you know, hey, can you provide me your list of vendors, provide me your list of subcontractors so I can call them and interview them and ask them questions about the maintenance that they've been doing and, you know, work out my contracts with them and, and see if they're actually people that I want working, you know, at my park. Um, you know, you want, you want to vet them out just the same as you would your tenant. I mean, differently than you would your tenant, but, you know, the same concept. You don't want to bring in some criminal or you're letting into people's apartments and you're not there over, you know, standing over the shoulder to make sure that something terrible doesn't happen. So you want to be able to go through and get, uh, you know, these, uh, these vendors lined up. And if you're in a value add park where you're bringing homes in, you're going to, you know, want to find a cheaper way to do all your setups, you know, your deliveries and setups. So I would really look into that as part of your pro forma is filling lots during your due diligence process, what that setup is going to cost if you do it, you know, full retail value versus setting up your own little, you know, maybe even company and buying a moving truck if you have a lot of homes to bring, because that might really bring down your cost. So you have to look a little bit wider on some of these subjects and, and see it more comprehensively when you're looking at these deals, uh, again, especially during the due diligence. But if you waited too long and now you own it, you might have paid too much for your acquisition. You might not have your vendors lined up. You might have a bunch of fussy municipal people and, you know, tenants that are planning to blow out because the previous owner really offended them. You know, so get your due diligence done up front so you don't find yourself looking at these questions as something as an afterthought. And now you're, you're scrambling to, to, to work it out because that's how these slippery slopes start. That's how these war stories that I have, you know, come to fruition. And uh, you don't want you don't want to find yourself in that position. Your your next book should be called Due Diligence. And that's it. And speaking speaking right. of your book, Glenn, um, it is now available uh, um, it on, is. on Kindle and on, in uh, its paperback, and I got mine, and it looks gorgeous. 
and the content is so good. Can you tell people how they can get the book? Sure. So I have both copies, both kinds on Amazon. All you got to do is go to Amazon and type in the mobile home park manifesto and you'll get a Kindle version or a paperback version. Kindle versions, you know, less than five bucks and the paperbacks just about 20 bucks or so. Um, We've had a, a, a lot of success. I can't believe it, man. Like I, I just looked at yesterday, there was 21 books shipped yesterday alone. Um, wow, freaking impressive to me. I mean, I, 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 I doubt I'll ever make my money back on this book. Yeah, but I've sold, I've sold a few hundred books now. I'm, I'm pretty impressed with dude, that. That you know? is uh, congratulations. I mean, that's amazing. And I want to tell people out there, the reviews are so important to us on Amazon. So if you could go and leave a good review, if you love the book or you thought it was helpful, an honest review would be really, really helpful to help spread really the word. It really would. Because it really would. That's the one thing that that's lacking on on the Amazon stuff. And, and we have, a, I think, maybe eight reviews on the paperback and like three on the Kindle. And I, you know, I, I, I appreciate the heck out of the ones that have, have reviewed it. And everyone who hasn't reviewed who's bought the book, I appreciate it. But man, would it really be cool and help me out if you guys could leave a sentence or two uh, about the book and leave it with a five-star review. There was a brief moment there a couple of weeks ago. I was bestseller on Amazon, number 15 in the investment books. And I was pretty excited Whoa, about that. That's awesome. And, and, it, and I think the reviews have something to do with that. It's no longer at that category, but I'm still you know, happy with the, how things are going there. Yeah. But Re- more reviews would boost that further because yeah. uh, the, the sales are great. I mean, we're selling you know, almost 20 books a day or something like that, you know, probably, probably, uh, you know, a a hundred books a week, give or take. And that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I like it. Hey, we got people, people reading it and we're talking about it here and people can go see you live and in person at the 2020 Louisville manufactured housing convention at the Kentucky exhibition center, January 15th through 17th. Again, Glenn will be speaking the morning of the 16th at 8 a.m. on a panel called and, Issues Eating Companies Alive. And we have a booth set up at this place. So you can come over and meet me and most of my team, not my whole team, but a lot of my team will be there. We have a booth set up right next to Rent Manager. And, uh, you know, we'll be there with all our deals, a handful of books and things like that. So if you bought a book and you're there, I'd be happy to sign it for you, talk to you. I don't know what's, you know. Uh, what you you know what you want me to do, but I'm happy to spend some time with you and, and discuss the industry. Um, you know, it's, uh, it should be an exciting time for everybody. Yeah, and, and if you, if you were listening to this podcast after the event, you can always reach Glenn at themhpexpert.com and you can call him directly. And he got a really cool, easy to remember vanity number. It's seven two zero. MHP, the number four, U, Y O U. And that number for people like me who uh, remember numbers better, it's 720 Glenn, thank you so much for your time and sharing all this wealth of information. Uh, for Glenn Esterson, I'm Jason Sorotin. This is the Mobile Home Park Expert Podcast, and we'll see you next time.